Okay, so typically uh, you get to the book, of, you know, you try to read through the Bible. If you make it through Leviticus, you don't make it through Numbers, right? As a young Christian, you just are like, that's enough. Let's go over to John. Let's go to the book of John, and we'll, we'll go from there. So here we are in the book of Numbers, and I'm not saying that I will make Numbers easy to understand, and I'm not saying that I understand everything in the book of Numbers. In fact, uh, Art Dunn is reading a commentary that is uh, one of the commentaries that I use for this study, and uh, he says, it seems like he just like reads the text and then just goes off wherever he wants and makes any point that he wants to make. <laughs> and I said, yeah, he does do that a little bit, that particular commentary. But if you read the different commentaries, they are all over the place on how to interpret the book of Numbers, you know, how to make sense of it. So uh, I'll do uh, my best, and I believe that if you uh, have an open heart, that it really will uh, help you. I have been uh, uh, just, I've studied about the first six chapters, and it has been a a rich blessing to me so far. So hopefully you will um, you'll have that as well. So in your English translations, num- the very, very first verse, uh, my ESV just says, the Lord spoke to Moses. Does anybody have a, a different phrase there? Uh, or is it just that's pretty much how all of your translations start? I wish Carla was here because the King James may have a slightly different... Um, the, the book of Numbers begins with a vav, which is basically and. So the whole book begins with and. Not usually how you start a book, right? But Numbers is designed to be in the Pentateuch. So it's supposed to have Genesis, Exodus... Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So those, all five of those are supposed to fit together. And really, Numbers is, is supplemental to Exodus and Leviticus. So if you don't, if you haven't ever really studied Exodus, or you haven't really studied Leviticus, it's really hard to get Numbers. Uh, I didn't think you wanted me to do a study on Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, so long enough to get through Numbers. Um, but I will tell you that, you know, Genesis we know is a, is a uh, book of beginnings. It's kind of like the origins of the people of God. How would you define Exodus in one sentence? So Exodus is lineage, okay? I would almost put lineage even in Genesis, because that's really focusing a lot on lineage, but um, good, good first observation. What else? Okay, so it's, it's deliverance, right? Deliverance of God's people from Egypt. Um, anything else? There's like two halves to the book of Exodus. And the first half is exactly what Leanne just described. It's the plagues. It's how God 
rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. That's the first half of Exodus is how he did that, okay? Anybody know what's in the second half of Exodus? Robin said it, the establishment of the tabernacle. Now, the law is in there, right, because it's, it, it's in Exodus 20, but it's the establishment of the tabernacle. So for this study, I've got you guys a tabernacle right here. So this was a, um, a model that I did with my kids when they were probably eight years old or something, pretty, pretty young. So it's, it's been in our church a long time. If we, at some point, maybe I'll take the covers off of the, the coverings here. You can see down into the tabernacle and the various aspects of it. But it's about the tabernacle. So if you read Exodus, it, it talks about how many posts you have, how far apart they are. You know, it's all about the construction of the tabernacle. And it's funny because I'm looking at that crooked and I want to get it back straight. Not that that matters to you, but... Um, so it's, it's very much laid out, right? And the tabernacle is a... It's a reflection of the real tabernacle that's in heaven, right? So God, God he, he doesn't just say, oh, let's kind of make it this way because it's practical. There's, in, there's this real spiritual tabernacle in heaven and God... Uh, designs the one on earth to reflect the one that's in heaven. And the idea is that he didn't just deliver his people out of sin, he delivered them to be in a relationship with himself such that the unholy can be with the holy. That's, that's what he's, you know, the tabernacle is all about um, helping you to understand that, that God is in heaven and holy, he's coming down to rescue his people, and they are not naturally holy. So he provides a way for them to come into his presence. So you'll see this later, but the Israelites would camp all the way around the temple, or the tabernacle, but then the priests would be like an in-between. And then, then you'd have the camps. And then if you wanted to come to worship, you'd come up to here, and then the priests would take your offering in, and the closer you got to the back of this tent is the Holy of Holies. And it's closer and closer to the presence of God and more and more holy as you get closer to him. And only fewer and fewer people could get that close to God. Okay, so that's, that's the whole idea. And, and it shows two things. One, it shows God's, and, and these are kind of um, crisscrossing things. So it shows that, that people can actually get into a relationship with the holy god so it's it's like showing the possibility at the same time it's showing uh basically not yet because because even though that there's a way into the presence of god it really isn't a way in there because you only the high priest could get into the holy of holies once a year and and everybody else had to stay away right i mean so there's it's not yet open right and we know that with christ the curtain's torn in two, and the way into the, in the presence of God is, is more fully revealed. But God is teaching this through the book of Exodus, okay? And this whole idea of, of the holy and the unholy being brought together in fellowship with God is really one of the main reasons for the tabernacle. I mean, it's, it's God's trying to show his people what it means, how big of a deal it is that this he is a holy God can actually dwell with an unholy people, Okay? So that's the tabernacle. Leviticus, how would you describe Leviticus? It comes from Levites, right? 
Some of you were actually in my class on Leviticus. Uh, that actually, I think, would be a much more, diff- it, much more difficult class to teach than Numbers, actually. Numbers has a lot of strange stuff at the beginning, some strange stuff at the end, and then in the middle, it's basically just history. But, um, but how would you describe Leviticus? Ritual, yes. Sacrifices, yeah. All about atonement, yes. I'm running out of room here. What's interesting uh, in the book of Leviticus is when I first started Leviticus and, and started studying about the sacrifices, there's like five different types of offerings and sacrifices. And, and I thought that all of those um, reflected this, um, what we think of atonement, like, like Christ dying on the cross for your sins and, and uh, the removing of your deepest guilt from God and your worst sins and all that kind of stuff. But if you read the book of Leviticus, most of it is about like, innocent mistakes, um, you know, kind of like not, not following ritual purity and having to be cleansed ritually. So there's not this like overwhelming sense of, oh, I'm a terrible person and I've just been freed from all my sin. The one exception is the Day of Atonement. That's when like all of your sins are wiped out, right? And that is the, the one that's most closely related to Christ, which would make sense. So, uh, so yeah, and I would just say that uh, the book of Leviticus is about regulating this ongoing relationship with a holy God. It's helping you to know how can you actually have this interaction with a holy God, okay? So then, uh, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Leviticus because these two are so closely related, uh, it's hard to... Hard to um, really split them up. If any, it's, you almost have four books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's that they're so close. So, uh, let's see here. So, Numbers, in many ways, is designed to answer the questions that Leviticus and Exodus don't answer. So it's like color commentary if you follow sports. You know, you got the play-by-play guy, and then you got the color commentary. Well, numbers is, is like the person saying, you know, he hits the, he hits the, the hit, uh, and, and the shortstop just misses it. And the play-by-play is just saying, oh, he dove for it, he just missed it and stuff. And then the color commentary guy is going... Was that an error, or, or was that uh, a base hit? You know, they're trying to figure that out. Where numbers is actually saying, no, that was an error. You know, that was a base hit. Like, you know, it's, he's telling you the things that the rest of the book of Leviticus does not do. So, and numbers is the only book that we have...
So Exodus, other than maybe the first couple chapters of Deuteronomy, Numbers takes you, this period here in the wilderness, like what happened during this 40 years in the wilderness is in Numbers. So once you get through the, the actual numbers and the censuses and the strange things at the beginning, Numbers is all about their journey in the wilderness. Like what, what actually happened between them being saved and given the law and they're actually entering the promised land. Well, that should, that should matter to you and I, and I'll tell you why. Because all of uh, Old Testament history models... It actually reflects salvation history. So, so if, if Egypt represents slavery to what? Not just the Egyptians, but what's it represent? Slavery to sin, right? The Red Sea is your baptism. You know, you're, you've been saved out of slavery and you've been redeemed and washed you know, uh, through that, First uh, Corinthians 10 talks about the giving of the law. You know, I'm now your God, therefore you need to follow me and walk with me in holiness. So that's, that's there. And then the wilderness, skip over that for a minute. Joshua leading his people into the promised land is Jesus taking us where? Heaven, new heavens, new earth. So what's the wilderness? It's our life, <laughs> where you are now. So Numbers, in a lot of ways, talks about you in a time where you, you are saved, but you're not yet saved. It's the in-between period, okay? Life in the in-between period, and which is fun because God does all these wonderful things. It's really cool stories in the book of Numbers, like Moses striking the rock and water coming out. Well, the new heavens and the new earth, you won't need striking the rock with waters coming out because God's going to have refreshing streams all over the place. But in the wilderness, when life is dry and you're not having a good time and things look, God, are you taking care of me? God will do this miraculous provision by striking the rock to take care of you. It's when he sends the manna. It's when he sends the, the, the quail. You know, all these wonderful miracles are wilderness miracles which more closely relates to where we are than any other book of the Bible. I'm glad you said that, because in the wilderness, sin is revealed. So when you're saved from Egypt, where, sin is the external enemy, saved from the bad people who are oppressing us. But in the wilderness, the problem is what Peter just said, it's in here. It's my sin. It's my stubbornness. It's my complaining. All those kind of things are revealed. So uh, we have a lot to learn from the book of Leviticus. It's history. It's helping us to understand the concept of holiness, uh, what it means to live in covenant relationship with God, even though we're not in our promised land yet. Uh, all of those kind of things. This is really just my um, advertisement to help you see that there's a lot of good stuff to learn from the book of Numbers. So, Numbers, the first 10 chapters, chapters 1 through 10, basically are God's, 
what happens, his revelation and, and actions that people do, over 50 days. So the first 10 uh, chapters are really just, bam, th- this is what's happening right there at the beginning. After the, after the giving of the law, um, they're, they're actually just setting up the camp, building the tabernacle, all this kind of stuff. They're just, it's them doing that. Then after that, then you're going to deal with the 40 years in the wilderness and the history stuff. And then there's going to be, at the very end of Numbers, there's going to be a second census. And they're going to have a new um, taking the census before they head into the promised land under Joshua. Okay, questions on this so far? You're talking about, um, you, yeah, but and you're talking about uh, Israel and his sons, and now you've got this huge multitude. Good. That's excellent. Yep. Any other questions or comments so far? Okay, let me ask you this question. Who, who's honest enough to say that they started the book of Numbers and then just stopped? At least at some point. Maybe you went back later and read it. But, <laughs> okay. <laughs> skimmed a lot. Yeah, skimmed a lot, yeah. So, okay. Um, well, just, that's okay. Uh, part of the reason why God has given the church teachers so there's got to be somebody who's crazy enough to want to, like, spend time looking at all these different things that nobody else is willing to look at, right? I mean, it's okay that not everybody wants to do this. I would imagine that not every Israelite was enraptured with the book of Numbers either, or the book of Leviticus. Now, the priests, they had to be, right? They had to do it to their regulation. So it's, it's okay that it's not... Um, your favorite book, and it's okay. But I do think that the entirety of Scripture, I've said this many times, the entirety of Scripture is like a puzzle. And if you leave out pieces in the puzzle, it just doesn't look right. When you look at the puzzle, it's unfinished. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't mean you can't learn many of the lessons that um, are in Numbers other places, but it just if you under if you go take the time to study numbers it's going to help you as you just step back and and think of the whole panorama of the bible it's going to help you to to um see it go oh that's how that fits together um so okay enough set of introduction let's read verses 1 through 16 who has a who has a uh desire to do that raise your hand and Annalise will give you the microphone Man, nobody wants to start. Mary always wants. All right, bring it to Mary. A lot of names in this one, so. I don't know. There it's on now. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month. In the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, 
according to the number of names, every male head by head, from twenty years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. And these are the names of the men who shall assist you. From Reuben, Elazar, the son of Shadur, from Simeon, Shelumel, the son of Zerudai, from Judah, Nashon, the son of Amminadab, from Issachar, Nathanael, the son of Zuar, from Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helen, from the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud, and from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur, from Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideoni, from Dan, Ahizer, the son of Amishadi, from Asher, Pagiel, the son of Akron, from Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Duel, from Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enon. These were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the heads of the clans of Israel. Okay, thank you, Mary. So the first question, uh, or the first statement, right at the beginning, the Lord spoke to Moses, okay? You may not think about this very often, but the Hebrew phrase, the Lord spoke, is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament, but only in a few cases to someone other than Moses. Think about that. He spoke to Moses more than anyone else. It's pretty amazing. When's the first time that God spoke with Moses that we, that we have recorded? The burning bush, right? Very good. Uh, so he spoke with Moses in the burn, out of the burning bush. Um, the degree of communication between Moses and God was exceptional. It was amazing. So you think about God communicated with Abram. Not anywhere close to what he does with Moses. Okay, Moses and God spoke together. So let's look at Exodus 33.11. Just to see a couple of these. So if you're the type of person that you would love it if God just spoke to you directly, Moses is your hero. Right? Should be. Um, I'm not always that person. I mean, I think I like that, but I'd rather him come through a mediator. But Moses, God just spoke to Moses. So what's it say in Exodus 33, 11? Raise your hand. We'll give you the microphone. Lee's got it. Thus the Lord spoke to, used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Okay, so uh, I'm just going to be general right now. Moses would go into this tent, and he would have communion with God, and Joshua would sit out here and go, wow, that's awesome. He's in there talking with Moses. Um, Deuteronomy 34 I'll just read this to you, verses 10 to 12. There has not arisen a prophet since 
in Israel like Moses. Whom the Lord knew face to face, and none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land, and for the almighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So Moses is the ideal. He is the prototype prophet in the Old Testament. In Moses, you know, we talk about uh, Abram being a type of Christ or the, the sacrificial lamb being a type of Christ. Moses is the type of Christ as prophet. Because Jesus fulfills everything that Moses does in part. Um, Let's turn to Deuteronomy 18 for a moment. Fifteen to nineteen. Uh, let's let Joe read back there. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, "Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die." And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So you, can you see there that the, 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 the prototype is, Mo, or the type is Moses and the real reality is Christ. He's the, he is the real prophet. Do you remember from the book of Exodus, because it mentions there Mount Horeb, which is really Mount Sinai, why do they have a prophet anyway? Why does God speak to his people through prophets? They couldn't stand direct communication. So the next time you want direct communication with God, remember Mount Sinai, because God said, okay, I'll speak to you. He starts speaking to them, and they just say, no more, no more. Speak to us through Moses. <laughs> and so God speaks to Moses, and then Moses talks to the people. And Jesus is our mediator in the same way. And the word of God is our mediator. So we have God's word. It's mediated to us. Because you don't want the holy God of the universe just showing up all the time to you. You'd probably be on your face all the time, Right? You might think that's good, but that's not the only thing God wants you to do. He doesn't just want his people to always fall down. He wants them to actually love him. And part of that is coming to him through a mediator. Okay? So just kind of setting up that Moses is this guy talking with God on a regular basis. So when, and back to Numbers, when and where does God speak to Moses? Tells us here. In numbers, when and where? Okay, they are they are in the wilderness, so that helps us, right? We know we're not in a promised land yet. In the tent of meeting. 
Actually, in the wilderness, actually helps you understand the timing as well, but it gets a little more um, clear of that, right? It's the second year, is that right? So they've been in the wilderness for a year. Um, first day of the second month, in the second year after they come out of Egypt. So they basically hang around Mount Sinai for about a year before they take off. Gives them enough time to build the tabernacle, lots of things that are happening. So, but he's in this tent of meeting. Southern tent of meeting. Tent of meeting. Um, so, um, what do you think he means by the tent of meeting? Well, that's the fulfillment. The church is, is uh, <laughs> the true tent of meeting, yep. Uh, but in the context... He just says he was meeting in the tent of meeting. What's he talking about? Moses and God. Is he talking about this? Is he talking about the tabernacle? Did Moses go into the Holy of Holies and meet with God? Remember, Moses not the high priest. So where, where does Moses talk with God? It's actually a very big question. So uh, turn back to Exodus 33. This is why... A lot of this is, I'm trying to help you see that if you don't have any sense of Exodus, you don't have any sense of Leviticus, it's really hard to even have a handle on what is going on here. So in Exodus 33, um, look down to verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp. So in Israel, you have a camp, and I don't even, at first, I don't even know if the tabernacle's built yet, but this is the tabernacle, and you had people, the, Levi, the priests all around the camp, and then you had tribes like this, I'll give you a picture of this later, um, like this, the 12 tribes around, like that. This was the camp. Well, outside, and you can actually draw like a, a circle like that. Because if you were inside the camp, you were considered holy. If you were outside the camp, you were considered unholy. Okay? So, it's interesting in this, it says, now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it where? Outside of the camp. Far off from the camp. Like, not here, over here. Let me get away from these people. <laughs> um, whenever Moses went out, okay, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. This is called a tent of meeting. This tent right here is a tent of meeting. Um, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, each would stand at, the, at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, a pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when the people saw the pillar of cloud, they, at the entrance, they would rise up and worship, okay, from their door. So, it gets really confusing in Scripture. When does the transition go from this tent to this tent? Because tabernacle means tent. And that's really hard to figure out. 
But I think it has something to do with until God sets up all the regulations and he makes his whole people holy, he does not want his tent to be in the middle of it. So he meets with Moses outside of the camp because this is where he's still wanting to communicate to his people, but he doesn't want to be in the midst of them yet because they haven't been made holy. Okay? Are you following this? God doesn't want to burn anger against his people because they're not holy yet. Um, Yes. Yeah, it can be. Um, it, maybe, but see, there was no, there was no sacrifices that went on in this tent. It's just God speaking to His people. He was holy, uh, but but the fact that He is outside of the camp does make sense to you now, because He is, He has to be. Well, you, you tell me, you draw the connections. Why would Christ be killed outside of the camp? He's unholy because of our sin. He's burying our sin. He's, he's right. So he's, he's being moved outside of God's presence so that he can pay the penalty, so that he can then bring you into God's presence, right? So that's a, that would be terminology that you would now understand. So... Um, so what's the, so yeah, all this wonderful thing. So you're, you're in the presence of God. You, I mean, of all the questions that you would ask of God in the presence, what's the first thing that God wants to tell him to do here in this? Now, I know there's other communications that he's had, but in the book of Numbers, what's he, what's he tell him to do? <laughs> Take a census. <laughs> Count everybody. I'm like... Is that the best you got, God? <laughs> like, what are you doing here? What's so important about that? And that's kind of how we think when we look at the book of Numbers. Like, let me get to the more important things. Because it doesn't seem very important that we would be taking a census, right? And yet, that is what God commands. Uh, <clears throat> There's actually two censuses in the book of Numbers. The other's at the end of, of the, the book in Numbers 26. We won't go there now. Uh, and that's why the book of Numbers is called Numbers because there are of these two censuses. But I would tell you that there's a lot more to the book of Numbers than just taking a census. So you'll, you'll see that as we go along. But why would God want a census to be taken? This is just you guessing. Okay, so a, a baseline uh, before and after, kind of like uh, you go into the hospital, they take your blood pressure at the very beginning, and then like, you take it later so they can have a baseline where you are. So that kind of thing, okay? One, one, comp, one idea. What else? He wants, a, he wants to know who, with a, with a distinct parameter, like who are not, he doesn't want the people of God to kind of be nebulous. Like who, who belongs and who's not? Who's the people of God? No, he wants, this is the people of God. Very precise. 
It, well, the fact that, yes, uh, could be related to the genealogy. We will get to uh, who the people are is very much directed to who their fathers are. Yes? Based on who. He already knows everything. Sure he does, yeah. So I'm like, is it more for them to know who? Because I'm like, he knows who. For the people to know. Excellent. And it, it actually... Like, when I drew this line that's strong and hard around there, it was very clear who was in and who was out. So there was a hard line. Uh, like, when people come to church on worship on, on Sunday, there's not a real hard line between who are truly members and who are not members of the church. I can't, you know. I mean, there is a way to do that, and we use the sacrament of baptism. If you're in or you're out, that's our hard line, right? But just by coming to church, you looked at the assembly, you wouldn't know which ones are true members and which ones are not because there's not a hard line of demarcation that we do. Like we don't have you put on a different hat when you come in so that we can distinguish who's who and who's not. But in Israel, it really mattered who was in and who was out. Okay, that's, that's good. Yes, Lee? Okay, so the so inheritance is a big deal because you're going to get a piece of land that's going to somehow connect to who you are and your family you belong to, right? I mean, so uh, there's a difference in how that gets distributed as time goes along. Very good. Wait a minute, he's going to keep talking. We'll let him give him the mic. If you got a quick comment, I can repeat it. But if you're going to speak any longer than a sentence, I need to let you talk. Go ahead. It's tied to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where the first covenant is made. And the covenant says there will be more people than the sands of the sea. And they are looking now at the beginning of that fulfillment. That comes back to Lee's comment on multitude, right? So like the book of Numbers is a, it, it may not be the final fulfillment because we know the final fulfillment is the Gentiles and uh, Jewish Christians together in the new heavens, new earth. But if you are just wanting to see that there's some progress between, between uh, 70 people or 65 and where they are now, there's a big progress, right? So God is being faithful to his people. Yeah. Yes. Next was was it uh, Hebrews and non-Hebrews, or can you clarify that? Yeah, a lot of Egyptians went with them. Yep. The census would provide a, a strong delineation between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. That's possible. Yeah. Although most of the Egyptians would have been servants and slaves of uh, attached to. Israelites, and so they would be in the household of those. So in other words, when you have the tribe of Gad or something, there would be Egyptians that would be not somewhere else. They would be attached to one of those tribes. Would they know their genealogy? Would that be related? Only as, in as much as their uh, being a servant in the household of Gad, which has a genealogy. So they're, they're being brought into that. Um, so again, it just shows that the 
the people of God, even from the very beginning, was not simply genetics. So, but it was very much connected to these 12 tribes. And everyone would have been attached to one of these tribes in one way or another. Thank you, Annalise. She passed off that duty to Marcus. <laughs> The people who are attached, as you said, yep. to, to the various households, are they considered sojourners? Or, or Okay, so um, we, I've used Gad just as one. So if you, were, um, if you were an Egyptian and you found yourself in one way or another attached to the people of Gad... If you wanted to truly be more than a sojourner, you would get circumcised. And then you would be a part of the tribe of Gad. You wouldn't be a second-class citizen to Gad. If you are a sojourner, that really doesn't exist in the wilderness that much. Uh, but when you get to the land, you have certain people that are living in the land who have not actually been circumcised, and so they're not really a part of Israel, right? So you have sojourners in the land, um, which is someone who's like a visitor. He's not a real citizen. Uh, and so, um, but it's, the, the Egyptian wouldn't be a sojourner unless he refused to adopt the, the covenant as a whole and, be, and became circumcised. If he was willing to do that, then, then he would be a full citizen, and he would be attached to one of the tribes. He wouldn't, there wouldn't be like an Egyptian tribe somewhere out there. It, you would be a part of the 12 tribes. So, <clears throat> Did that answer your question, Lee? What a sojourner is? The, the difference is just not accepting circumcision at, onto yourself. Because you, you, are, you are a full citizen if you adopt... Uh, the full covenant responsibilities and get circumcised. Sojourners in a way. Um. <sighs> yeah, uh, you mean like Gentile Christians or just? Well, we are because we're living in we're living in the wilderness, so we're not in our home. So we're actually sojourners in America because America is not our true home. Eternity is our home. So every Christian is a sojourner until we get to our eternal home. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so, in Exodus 30, I won't make you go there, but you should know that the, that the census, attached to the census, just like today, attached to the census is a tax. That makes sense? Why do we take censuses today? So the IRS can know where you are. <laughs> and they can get their taxes from you. Okay, well, Old Testament Israel is not a completely different. But what would need to be supported in Old Testament Israel? They didn't have a king. They didn't have a police force. Not really. Tabernacle. You had to support the tabernacle. And we had to, so you're thinking you had to support worship. Yes, yes. 
So the, the, and there's going to be all these special connections. Sometimes Levites, when you bring a sacrifice, a portion of that goes to the Levite and his family. You know, there's all this, uh, because God basically has 12 tribes, and he takes one of those tribes, and he says, this tribe is not going to be self-supporting. So the other 11 tribes have to support this one tribe, Okay. Now, this tabernacle tax, according to Exodus 30, was the same for everyone, rich or poor. So it was a flat tax, okay? Could be other taxes that were graded, but this one for the tabernacle was a flat tax because every citizen in the kingdom was supposed to give the same amount because you're all equally participating in the worship of God. Uh... Not in, not, in this, not in this one. Every, every citizen had a certain flat tax that they used at the beginning of this. Not a, not a percentage. There's other taxes that were percentage, but not this one. Uh, it says here, uh, uh, everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upwards shall give the, the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering and make atonement for your lives. So it's actually, this, this initial tax was like, it's hard to think of just giving money as an atonement, but, but they're giving this basically to say, okay, you're in. Uh, you are cleansed. You're atoned for. Um, all who were 20 years old and upward must pay the tax. <clears throat> This is Exodus 30. Uh, I have 11 through 16, but it really is 14, 15 right in there. So 11 through 16. But there, there's uh, one, and there's still 12 here because uh, the, the people of Joseph are split into two. So you have Ephraim and Manasseh. So, technically, in order to keep this 12, because God really likes symmetry, and he wants it to be 12, so he, there were 12 tribes, he splits one into two, so that you can have one tribe over here that is uh, not a part of the land inheritance, uh, but they need to be taken care of. So the, the Levites do not pay the tax. Why would they not pay the tax? They don't own land. I mean, they, I mean, they're all in the wilderness now, but they're not even—they're not even going to have their means of production. They're just—they're just servants, right? They're—they're they're, uh, serving in the temple. They're serving to the Lord, and so they—their uh, income is through service. The Levites are going to be counted later in Numbers 3 and 4, but it's going to be for a different reason. Now, just so you know, this is God setting up, and this is him commanding a census. So censuses aren't bad things. But later on, David wants to have a census, and God is angry at him for that. 
Why would God be angry at David for wanting to do a census when he commands a census here in Numbers? David was doing out of, of pride because he wanted to know how many men were in his army. It was a sign of his strength. And that's not what God wants. He doesn't care about you feeling good about yourself. Like, he'd probably be against um, uh, taking attendance in church so that the pastor and the elders could feel good about themselves because they've got a lot of people coming to church. He'd be opposed to that. He'd be like... Good, good. Uh, bring the microphone down here to Leanne. <laughs> Was it also because David's purpose was to see how many men would be in his army, and it was a kind of a negative connotation there? Well, the, the king was not supposed to amass a strong army because he was supposed to rely on God to defend him rather than trust in himself. And so he was looking at his own strength, the human strength, rather than in God. So that's, yes, that's a part of that too. So I just wanted to let you know that, again, context is everything. Is it good or bad to take a, sen- a census? Well, it depends on the context. Right? Sometimes God commands it, sometimes he's opposed to it. Um, and so, in this situation, he commands it, because he wants uh, the people to be numbered for reasons that we already talked about. Uh, how should the census be taken? What are some of the specifics of this? I have, I have four different specifics. By what? Take the census by what? By age? By tribe? By name? Gender? Yeah. Be hard in, in our day, wouldn't it? <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, so we see things like um, uh, by tribe and and male headship so even the census it was the the men and the heads of the families that did this Um, children were not included in this census right so age, you had to be 20 years old or older. When you get to the Levites, you take the census of one month and older. I'll talk about that later. Like, why would, why would that be? You know, but, but here, it's 20 years older because if you were 20 years old, you could, you could fight in the army. And actually, much of numbers and the way they set up the camp is, is taking the whole people of God and describing them as an army, according to their units, their, their companies, their regiments. It's like, it's, it's just this army that's moving forth. Uh, comment, Ken. Yes. I keep coming, back in my own, keep coming back in my own thoughts about go to war, which Ken just mentioned, who are able. And so I'm wondering if, to me, that would be critical because there would be some potentially who would not be capable of going to combat. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. That's so for right. For what it's worth. Yes. Okay, so um, let's see here. Peter and John, you guys pass these out. We're almost done. Five minutes of class here, but. So this is me being a, uh, I'm not very often this, I don't, I'm not actually this, but I'm trying to be a detail nerd uh, in this. So I don't, I'm not, detail's not my thing, if you know me long, I'm swooping big picture uh, stuff. But it, this, I was trying to get a handle on things here. So, in what we've just read in 1 through 16, uh, we see there's an order, right? And I'm not going to force you to, um, to go back and, and read all that that Mary read to us earlier. But there's an order, right? Um, he goes through, in the census, each of these leaders who are going to help with the census, Right? And you don't care, it's just, oh, the census is taken, that's good, fine. But he goes through, and he, in the list of the leaders, he gives, he has an order. So if you were to follow and just forget the, um, uh, forget the, the actual leader, but each leader is connected to a tribe, it would go from Reuben to Simeon to Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, Gad, and Naphtali. Um, that's the list of the leaders. Um, but what I have in this tribe right here, and you can see on, on your list there, you have the birth order. So Reuben, Simeon, those are the first two, right? And then it goes to Judah. Who should be in the birth order? Levi, right? So Levi, and then Judas would be normally next in the birth order, but because he's moved up, Levi's not even on the list, right? Because Levi's been cast into the special tank over here. So Judah just moves up. But then Issachar moves into fourth place, and Issachar's birth order is not down till nine. Right? You following that? Then it goes to Zebulun. Then you got Joseph, which is Ephraim and Manasseh. Then Benjamin's moved up to eight. He's 12th in the birth order. Ahiazar, uh, which is Dan, uh, he's kind of moved down. Poor guy. He was fifth in the birth order. Now he's down. Don't you have, you just have this, right? Yeah, that's all, just, just that list. So I want you to see the birth order, and I'm reading to you the list of the leaders. So, I'm, so you don't see all that. So um, in other words, this order is mixed. It's switched around. Things are changed. That's the point of it. Uh, 
And your, your question is, why would you move them around? Why would the leaders be different um, on this? And I just have to tell you that I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why they're different. Uh, but I do, I, I thought, well, let me just think about, you have birth order, but then you have connection to mo- mother. And that's what I have for you on this list. So if you look in, this is coming from Genesis 29 and 30. But Leah is Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. So if you look at this, I think that priority of Leah is still kept in this. Um, then you have, uh, if you go from Leah, she's an she's a actual wife. And then you go down, who has the children after that? It's actually Rachel's servant. Do you see Bilhah there? So Dan and Naphtali are actually of Bilhah. So if you look at this, uh, uh, the fact that um, Dan and Naphtali are pushed down is rather interesting to me uh, on the list. This servant is, is pushed down. But then you immediately go back to, um, uh, let's see, five, six. So the servant of Leah, Gad and Asher, right? They're, they're actually, and they're down low on the list too. So Dan, Asher, Gad, and Naphtali are the uh, tribes of the servant ladies, which is interesting. And then you have, uh, it goes back to, um, Leah has two more kids, Issachar and Zebulun. And it seems like Issachar and Zebulun are going up. So if, if I'm looking in numbers, and I'm reading this in numbers one, I think the first six tribes, counting uh, Levi, are at the priority. So the, the, having Leah as your mother mattered <laughs> at this point. And then you go to um, uh, Rachel has Joseph, and then later on she has Benjamin, and uh, Joseph's uh, there, uh, and Benjamin are, are after Leah, but they're before the servant people. So that make any sense to you? Are you following that at all? Uh, that the, the tribe somehow, uh, even in Numbers 1 when they're taking the census, I don't know if God commands this or if it's just their understanding. So maybe they have this pecking order, like, like Leah's the best, and then Rachel's next, and then the children. I'm not sure that God sees it that way, but it might be the way they do it because they were um, probably looking in terms of who's more important in the list. So, but I just want to bring that out to you. Yes. In, in other parts of scripture where they give totals of uh, armies, etc., it seems to go from the greatest to the least. And since the first four names on the list were the earliest born, perhaps they had larger tribes. So I'm just wondering if it was, you know, God's way of, you know, numbering the greatest tribe to the least. Well, that, see, that's what I'm saying. We're going to see that the, this order of taking the census is... is uh, I'm not sure if that's God saying in this order because later on when they take the census, they use a different order. So I'm just wondering if this is just humans going, yep, Leah's first, Rachel's second, you know, servants of uh, Rachel next, servants of, you know, just uh, it could be that kind of thing happening. So I don't know. Uh, The order of listing the leaders is not the same order as the census. That's my point. 
And it's a conundrum to a lot of people. What, what causes the order? Because when God does the census, he's going to put each tribe in a very specific place. He's going to want Judah here. He's going to want, you know, Reuben here. Gideon, you know, he's going to say, I want you in this position. But in the, in the actual uh, taking of the census, it doesn't seem like God commands anything specifically just in the, the census itself. So, all right, we need to stop from there. We haven't gotten too far um, and I, I will tell you that once we get into this, it will go very quickly. We're going to just fly through these first five or six chapters once you get the basic understanding of what's happening. So, all right. So, Father, thank you so much for uh, the book of Numbers. A lot of things we don't understand, but there will be a lot of rich blessings here. And I just pray that you would help us to, um, to uh, chew on it all and to find the true gems. In Jesus' name, amen.